Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Turning the Goldfields Green. In today's episode, we talk with Peter Yates, who you might remember from episode 7 when we spoke to him and his son Rory about their documentary, When the River Runs Dry. It's a film about the 2019 mass fish kill event in the Darling River and all of the water management issues that lead to it. Today, we listened to an interview I did with Peter several months ago, back when the bushfires were the main topic and we'd never heard of the coronavirus. I had held on to this interview to use at a time when there was not other topics that needed to be aired immediately, which, living in this region with so many things happening around sustainability, has kept us busy all season until now. And suddenly, this interview is the most timely and relevant one to air. But before we get into it, I'd like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded, edited and produced on Jara country, home of the Jajawarung people, whose elders I pay my respects to, be they past, present or emerging. PDH has worked extensively with traditional owners in various parts of Australia, and as you'll hear in this interview, he has a deep respect for the profoundly different way that they care for, understand and participate in being part of this country. Salt. 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 Yeah. Salt. Salt of the earth people, grassroots change, salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. I had heard Peter speak at the Mount Alexander Shire Council's Climate Emergency Forum and had found his comments insightful and eloquent. In this interview, recorded several months ago, we began our chat by talking about his life up to this point, a life that includes working with World Vision, travelling Australia with a young family in a gypsy wagon pulled by camels, and working with Indigenous rangers in land management. Later in the episode, we unpack the ideas involved in deep adaptation, which is a concept Peter has been thinking about and discussing with others. It is a topic made famous by Jem Bendel, who published an academic paper in 2018 entitled Deep Adaptation, a map for navigating climate tragedy. The topic of adaptation, as opposed to deep adaptation, is an interesting one for me and something I will cover in more detail in future episodes. Funnily enough, it has been accepted by our federal government that we need to adapt and plan for change, but they still will not accept that climate change is happening, or rather, they will not publicly admit that climate change is human-induced. There is funding and research happening right now for adaptation, to try and ease our way as a society into a future that may be impacted by climate change. For example, how do we adjust in central Victoria to the predicted changes of hotter and drier summers, less regular rainfall, but larger flooding deluges when the rains do come? And how do we prepare for larger and more frequent bushfires? Deep adaptation, on the other hand, is about what do we do if all of our systems don't just become stretched and strained, but what if they fall apart? Please look at the links section in the description of this episode for further reading on this topic. You can find it at saltgrass.podbean.com. So I'm choosing to air this episode now because it seems timely in this period of massive social disruption due to the coronavirus. Some would have called this type of thinking extreme before the coronavirus event that is disrupting every nation on the planet right now. And it's really only just begun. It's going to be a long time before things feel normal again. At the time I did the interview, I definitely felt like this kind of thinking was more hypothetical than real, but here we are, in a time when people are getting ugly over toilet paper, but also spontaneously pulling together and creating community in the way that just wasn't seen before this. Suddenly the government is happy to support those out of works and banks are coming through with various packages for mortgage relief. People are reaching out to strangers and offering to do their shopping, making sure no one is left alone or forgotten in this time of so-called social isolation. Physical distancing seems a more apt term because it seems to me that there is more true, thoughtful and caring social connection than ever before. So as you listen to this episode, keep in mind that it was recorded just a couple of months ago when climate change and bushfires was at the front of our minds and very few in Australia had yet heard about the coronavirus. Please also be aware that there is some language in this episode that people may consider offensive and may not be appropriate for children. Mm. 
researching you, I came across uh, a Peter Yates, who uh, is a church-going advisor to the gambling industry, um, has worked 15 years for the Macquarie Group as a banker, and is the CEO of Kerry Packers Media Group, BLT. That's not you? Innocent. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the one thing that Peter Yates has got going for him is that his younger brother ran in Kuyong against the Liberal Environment Minister. And oh, that's Oliver Yates. Yeah, Oliver Yates' brother. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, there's another Peter Yates who's a film director who is worth um, $214 million net worth. I have a feeling he's dead too, so oh, who'd want to be him? No, no one. <laughs> and there's another PD, there's another PD8 yeah. in Alice Springs, ah. who's uh, usually known as Jilpy PD8. I was known, I used to be known as PD8 the Hirsute, uh. for reasons that are obvious to those who are around me. He, he's bald and I'm hairy. Yep. Anyway, he he was uh, involved in a casting in film in across Central Australia, so he has a long history of working with um, Aboriginal people yeah. in film. So uh, it was just funny we lived. Well, not quite the same street, but just around the corner, and um, we <laughs> shared each other's reputations, which was mostly good. At least it was for me. That's good. <laughs> we shared each other's mail. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's very weird. So this incarnation of Peter Yates, <laughs> you, you have been known as the Cable Man, and you are an anthropologist, and you've been an advisor to World Vision. I worked as a consultant with World Vision on a um, food security project in Ethiopia, Niger and Senegal and we were looking at introducing Australian acacias as a um, drought tolerant food plant that would add resilience to the agricultural ecosystem in these places which are very uh, well they're semi-arid environments terribly hot and um, very much analogous to parts of northern Australia like Balgo or um, Elliot you know, if you know these places these places are hot and hard and in Australia we we would we can barely bring ourselves to put cattle on there mm. in Africa millions of people live there yeah. and they live off the millet crops that they can grow in this I'm describing the, the West Africa and Ethiopia was a different situation but yeah very harsh environment millions of people Population growth rates to curl your hair, doubling doubling times of 19 years, 21 years. If you haven't got a problem with population yet, come back in a few years, you definitely will have. Yeah. And of course, these are the areas that are driving this huge migration pressures into Europe. We calculated that the combination of the benefits of the trees plus the food that the trees would produce themselves, the, the value of the wood they would produce for the local environment, all this would come close to doubling the agricultural output um, and that was more or less demonstrated in a few trials but um, it wasn't to be mm. and anyway you do that you double agricultural output in, a, in an area well in 21 years time you're back where you started yeah. so it, it got very depressing as a sense of well, what's the bloody point anyway it came to an end because priorities in world vision changed and here we are here we are in Malden, and you actually have the most beautiful property where you've got the hills at the back and you're looking out over sort of barring up area and the most beautiful vistas of, of rolling kind of land and you live on a hill with... I love the, the bulbous kind of sitting up rocks, the same as you get at Dog Rocks on Mount Alex or Lianganook. Yeah, it's a pretty lovely bit of country and it grabbed us straight away. We came down from Alice Springs and so we were yeah, long-term desert dwellers we, yeah. 20 years in the center and didn't know how we'd cope we had a son who was a hotshot soccer player at the time and we needed to get him down to where he could play at a decent level and that meant being within a reasonable distance of a capital city and we thought oh well Castlemaine's reputedly a lot like Alice Springs in terms of the social world so let's try there and we went there and we just didn't like the country all this degraded thick scrubby bush and was like no nah, don't like it don't like it and we were actually on the verge of going up to the hunter valley to see if there was something out the back of sydney and we thought oh go and have a look at molden and we hadn't got halfway up the driveway and we'd bought the place and it was like <laughs> <laughs> love the rocks love the i mean it's full of these strange introduced trees and all that it's, it's, it's a weird block but it's beautiful as we sit here we look out at the rock of ages on the right and yeah the bradford hills a bit over to the left it's a tough place to live. One of the first things I noticed as I drove up your driveway was a beautiful gypsy-esque caravan, which is something that you and your wife and child lived in for 
many years as you travelled. Yes, that wagon we built many years ago. Well, our oldest son is now 27, I think. Um, lost track, but about that. Yeah. We were living near Druin in um, West Gippsland and we had some camels down there because I'd had camels before that. That's a longer story. But we just were not coping with the Gippsland winter and the dream built up of we wanted to just go back to the desert but how do you do it with a well Rory was just born so he was under one how do you, you can't anyway we cooked up the plan, let's build a wagon train the camels to pull it all of which we did a lot of it was a bit edgy but you know it was all good fun and we got we and the camels learnt and it all got better and how long did you spend travelling around it's northern Australia, the northern top end sort of, and central Australia. You were travelling around with it with your camels? Look, Australia's a very big place, so no, we never really got much past Alice Springs. Oh. We travelled up through western New South Wales and then across the Streslecky Track, Flinders Ranges, South Australian deserts, and eventually we got to um, the Pitanjara lands in the north of South Australia and got in touch with a guy I'd gotten some of my first camels off, or got with, rather. We worked together to... to get some camels a few years before and um, Roger KBP said well we'll come and stay you know help us break in some camels for a while and so we sort of stopped for a cup of tea and five years later we left <laughs> we left with an extra child and um, and, a, a, and a sort of a career so in inland management so uh, it was fortuitous or a eventful stop. What was your role in land management what sort of things were you doing? It was a funny time I, I, I sort of inherited this job mainly because there was no housing and we had a camel wagon. So um, here I was, I was the one-eyed man in the Kingdom of the Blind, in a way. Yeah. I found myself in charge of Anangong Pitanjara Land Management Unit, which essentially was supervising 12 Indigenous rangers and working out a land management strategy with people. What do you want to do with this land in the whole scope of what that could be? And just working out how to run a ranger project when you know the values of government who are providing the money and the values of indigenous people were so utterly different mm. and trying to kind of be the grease between these two um, implacable not enemies but they constantly look past each other talk past each other didn't understand at all yeah. and so there's me on the ground actually studying anthropology at the time and so I was in pretty rich territory but didn't mean I had any answers it was mm bumbling from day to day and trying to work it out and uh, it's still happening up there but I've heard over the last few years increasing calls for indigenous rangers and you know funding for that is that linked to the sort of projects you were doing and and what do you see as the value of of having indigenous rangers the work up there was it was really valuable in the sense that here are the people who are from of that country that's their land they're not going anywhere mm. they want to be there there's a bit of a fallacy out there that if it's bush, it's wilderness, and if it's wilderness, it looks after itself. And you know, it's just not true. The Australian bush has been managed by somebody, albeit in a sort of a lifestyle-embedded way, but it has been managed and there have been human interventions for many, many thousands of years. What early whitefellas coming into this country would have seen was a highly managed environment, and everything in it was dependent on the maintenance of particularly the fire regimes mm. then all that stopped and everything changed replace fire with cattle and sheep to some degree there's an analogy there but not really but if you just take the people out which is effectively what happened move all the people onto missions and government stations and whatever mm. and say you know don't light fires then everything changes and plus you add in cats and foxes and yeah. you know shit really hits the fan the land requires constant attention, and uh, and that and from an Aboriginal point of view, that's that's really important as well because the land is not just a thing; it's not just a, a ma machine that sort of a follows b. It's actually full of spirits and the old people and people who've gone. You know, the, the ancestors are all watching over, and you need to go there and you need to make yourself known and you need to attend to the things that they think you should be doing. Mm. And if you don't, then you're failing as a person. So more broadly, the, the Aboriginal ranger movement, if I can call it that, is, I mean, it's patchy. There's some that are better than others. There's no doubt that there's some brilliant work and there's some, 
some that are a bit iffy, but that goes for absolutely any industry. It's really, how are you going to manage this country? This vast area of land we call Australia, how are you going to manage that? And remember that something in excess of, I think it's 50, 51% of the Northern Territory is now Indigenous controlled. How are you going to manage that if you don't have people doing stuff on there? And so, you know, it's just, it's essential. And there's your workforce. They want to be there. It's... It's their job. It's actually their vocation. It's not just, oh, yeah, I'll give you money, you go and do that work. No, it's their vocation. They want, they need to do it. You know, it's one of the best things that's happened in land management. Yes, it could be better, but, you know, we're on the right track. And, um, you know, the first thing I would do if you gave me the magic wand is, you know, triple it. And in the light of the fires this year, there's a consistent message of, like, the land hasn't been managed well. It seems very apparent that we do need to manage our natural... Like books like The Dark Emu, even Bruce Pascoe is giving lots of evidence that the land has been highly managed by the, by the Indigenous people for millennia. And, and it is what it is because of that. And us just, as you said, leaving it to be wild isn't actually a good solution for our particular environment. Yeah. Look, I mean, the, the recent bushfires, are, there's just so many factors feeding into those. And I'm not sure that... I think we're so far from an in, the original Indigenous managed mm. landscapes that I'm not sure that if we tried to reinstate any of that, it would make a, a vast difference. It's, it's a bloody mess now. And, you know, there's so many factors, including a, um, an extended, deep, very deep drought. Mm. But add to that issues like logging and the fact that you just can't get the fuel reduction burns, which Aboriginal land management in those forested areas would have involved probably autumn burns. Well, nowadays you just don't have the time to do the work you would need to do. And so, and the other thing is in some of those fires, particularly around Glen Innes, the fuel reduction burns had been done and it was already burnt forest that burnt. So, sorry, there's something else going on here. It's the, it's the extremes. It's the run of days above 40 degrees. It's the, an exceptionally windy season. This is just all adding up, and then you add add to that the you know reduction in firefighting resources and and utter refusal to um, to acknowledge that there might actually be a problem with climate change. Let's say it it will change; it has to change, and it'll change suddenly when it does. But yeah. I think it's you know there's a rising anxiety, but also a rising anger out there in the community you know, that will force change. Well, we've seen that recently here in the Mount Alexander Shire where the local council has been put under a substantial amount of pressure to declare a climate emergency and there's been a process over the last few months around that and recently they had a forum where they invited the community to have a say about what they think about climate change and there was an overwhelming, an overwhelming response of concern and a desire and need that the council lead the way and declare a climate emergency, which they have since done, which is really good first step. <laughs> it's, it's a symbolic step, but it is a first step and it allows, it allows them then to take stronger action, I think. Um, hopefully we'll see that happen. So I heard you speak at that forum. You gave a five-minute presentation to the councillors. You were talking about various things, including the state of the nation being in a the first stage of grief, which is denial, and, and going on from there. Do you have anything to say about what you presented to Council? I think sitting here in central Victoria, it's easy to say, oh, climate change means higher fire risk and some hot weather, and that's the end of it. But it terrifies me, the equanimity with which Australians have accepted the loss of half of the Great Barrier Reef. And the other things they don't know about, the hundreds of kilometres of mangroves dead in the Gulf of Carpentaria. The uh, sea level rise is washing out the graves of ancestors on islands in the, the Torres Strait. The same sea level rise is causing saltwater infiltration into the World Heritage listed Kakadu National Park wetlands. This drought is causing the bushfires or is behind the bushfires but is also a factor, it's not the only factor but it's a major factor behind the Darling River fish kills Yeah, and I absolutely do not diminish the impact of government mismanagement and over extraction of water that's, that's in there too. Oh and we had 
millions of short-tailed shearwaters failed to arrive from Alaska. So we expect millions and thousands come. There should be, I think there's estimates of around 6 million birds that nest over the summer at near Port Ferry, Bass Strait Islands, parts of Tasmania, Phillip Island. Absolutely millions of these birds, they fill the skies. Well, they don't anymore because they didn't come. Why? Because the krill that they would normally feed on before they came didn't show up in the Alaskan waters and we lose our birds. We've got disasters of this magnitude unfolding around us and people don't know. So the overwhelming thing at that presentation, I got the sense of I was telling people things they didn't know. I felt the councillors sit back on their haunches as though, oh shit. So if you think that we're insulated from that here, well, we are for a little while, but we'll suffer a 44-degree day, but that's yeah, not unheard of. But a 50-degree day is, and that's in the foreseeable future now. It could be this year. It could be next year, but it will happen. And uh, will we have a fruit industry in Harcourt after that 50-degree day? Will we lose native birds? The costs of this are just going to mount. To me, the biggest costs are... Well, the cost of the environment is one thing, but this climate change thing is a symptom of a disease. The disease is based in the way we live and the way we see our place in the world. And I would argue, along with people a lot cleverer than myself, that we are a part of the earth. We are not separate from it. We are not rightly lords and masters of this earth. And, you know, if you want evidence of that, I think look at the depression amongst people who really understand that climate change is happening. They're actually, that depression is a symptom because we are part of something that is sick and it infects us. I mean, you can't sit back and watch the world you know, everything you love, disappearing from under your feet and not be affected. But I think it's, it's more systemic than that and I think we're in for some very dark times ahead. So you have started gathering some like-minded people to just informally discuss ideas around deep adaptation. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, so deep adaptation is an idea that comes out of the UK. There's an academic there called Jem Bendel who wrote a very influential paper, essentially saying it's likely that we have moved from a linear phase of climate change into an exponential non-linear phase, meaning it's likely to accelerate. We may have passed tipping points that will render us ever deeper in the problem, quite unable to to stop it perhaps. So Bendel's thesis is if this is true, and we, for the purpose of his argument, we assume that it is true, then for one thing it can always be worse, so you always have to do everything you can to mitigate and there's absolutely nothing in the argument to say they shouldn't but we have to realize that we are facing a time when civilizational collapse is highly likely the way he puts it is we're now at a time when civilizational collapse is almost inevitable and species extinction that is of humans plus countless other creatures is actually you know possible i mean we get up around six degrees of warming and to be, you, know, you have to understand the Paris Agreement puts us in the field of 3.2 to 3.6 degrees of warming. We're not even in the field for the 1.5 aspiration. You know, nobody's taking that seriously. Nobody expects to achieve that. So it's going to change and it's going to change badly. So what do we do as humans with children, with, as humans who you know, love our planet? What do we do? The deep adaptation says, well, you need to look at relinquishment. The three R's of Jem Bendel. Relinquishment, what are we prepared to let go of? Or what must we let go of? Simply because it's not possible or because we realise, yeah, we can't do that anymore. We can't just drive around in our cars endlessly. We can't fly when we're overseas for a holiday just because we feel like it. Resilience is the, is the second one. And building resilience is something that has been talked about for a long time, ever since... The early 2000s, people were talking about peak oil and panicking about that, and resilience was the answer. And it, you know, the problem has changed. It's funny reading back on the old material. Peak oil was the big disaster. We're about to run out of oil. We won't be able to afford any of this, and everything will have to change. And climate change is just this little thing in the background. This is oh yeah, and, and climate change. Oh, it'll be really bad. 
oh, climate change. And yeah. actually, now here we are facing the reality of climate changes. We find ourselves in this world where everything is under threat. And goodness, you know, but resilience is still the answer. And that, that resilience, well, it could be many things, and I think we're still teasing that out. But it's about local economies. It's about doing a sensible amount for yourself whilst being dependently linked to the people around you within a reasonable distance. Mm. It's about not being utterly dependent on a machine, like the big multinational machine that delivers all our wants just as long as it works. If it were to suddenly stop working, then what would we have? What would you eat for dinner tomorrow night if the machine stopped working? So if the local supermarket no longer had dairy from Gippsland and meat from the Netherlands, what would you eat? Yeah, and what would you eat? Well, I mean, and how would that come about? Well, for starters, the, a severe weather event can take out power for days on end. Mm. So the local supermarket just lost all its freezers and, freezers and refrigerators. So, yeah, we've all survived that in a minor way. But what if it was really severe? The, the three R's. The, the third R, restoration. So it's what skills do we need to be thinking about regaining or bringing back or, you know, the, some of the old trades or... Now, when I started thinking about deep adaptation, I thought, oh, well, it's OK. I've invested a lot of money on this place, putting in an off-grid electricity system and, you know, all the efficiencies that have to go with that. We're... 90% independent in terms of water and all this stuff we've put a lot of effort into and you know we've got an orchard down there it produces all our fruits and blah 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 all fine but all right so just think about the power for a minute in a situation of civilizational collapse you can't just jump online and or go down to the shop and buy some new solar panels or some new batteries for your system which just died because they do you can't just go and buy a new inverter. Um, so where are you going to get one? Sorry, you can't get one. It's yeah. The system is no longer functioning. All of that high-level technology is a thing of the past. So, okay, I've invested all this, and my solar panels will last 25 years, if I'm lucky. And then what? Yeah. I, mean, I wonder how, how many listeners know how to make a solar panel, let alone an inverter. Mm. You know, so there's a kind of a step-down of technology. At the end of the day, you... Really, you, you're back to candles. Is that what we want? Well, we might not have a choice. People still need to eat, so farming may need to revert to old, proven technologies like horses. Now, not saying this is absolutely essential, but it is essential that you think about it. And if nothing else, this getting together in this group puts, it, puts the, these possible realities firmly in front of you and makes you think, makes you sit up and take notice. Oh, right, this is how serious it could be. We just mooch through life imagining that everything's solid. But climate change means that it's not solid. There is actually nothing solid anymore. We really need to just approach the future with that in mind, that you can't trust the system to deliver the things that you always thought were going to be there. Things are changing enough anyway with this sort of endless march of technology and this thing we call progress but you know that's all going to be derailed in all likelihood it will be derailed and um and then what we either sort of leap leapfrog it all into some you know techno utopia or more likely dystopia or we drop back into another way of being in the world which probably from where most listeners stand sounds like a terrible thing oh we'd only have candles and we'd have to work hard for our living and you know we'd have to grow our own food and probably make our own clothes or at least it'll be done by somebody local and it's sort of like it feels like a terrible regression but it just might be that if we thought about it well if we built that in the right ways it might be that life would get better that life would become rich and full of people that we would be able to rebuild the the good bits of the past without recreating the poverty and the insecurity and this is my I don't know whether I call it agrarian but this is this is my kind of potential utopia you know we can all look at a history book and see what the past was and we know that it wasn't that great in many respects but on the other hand you know think of farming 
In the old days, and it's, we're not talking very old days, I remember reading a John Seymour, the guru of self-sufficiency, John Seymour book and he described buying a farm in Wales and um, you know he planted his crop and it grew and sort of one day he was a bit surprised he woke up and there's all these people milling around sort of waiting for him come on it's time to harvest and all the locals basically got together and helped each other with the wheat harvest so they're, they're there with this I think there was a might have been a tractor or something. I can't remember whether they were using scythes or what, yeah. but they basically all got together. They're out there working together, mm. singing songs and doing this manual labour with a real sense of community. Mm. He thought he'd be out there doing it on his own. Well, look at, the, look at farming in Australia now. It's rife with suicide, mm. as farmers do it all alone. Mm. They've got their machines, they're barely making a living and they're just spending all this time alone and dealing with the blows alone. Um, no, virtually no farm exists without an off-farm income these days. So, yeah, has progress delivered us anything, honestly? Yeah. The other day we were talking and you were talking about farming and what it could mean if it was really considered, um, a truly deeply considered, almost spiritual kind of practice. The type of change we as a species, particularly Western culture and those who wish to emulate Western culture, need to, need to make is to stop imagining ourselves lords and masters of, the, of all things and start seeing ourselves as a, a small integrated part of a great big network of dependencies. Uh, those relationships are what matter. Just like in, you know, in a healthy human society, relationships are what matter. You know, no, Margaret Thatcher was not right. Society is not a collection of individuals striving to make their way. Society exists and it's a group of people who care for each other. And um, we need to expand that concept to put... We need to dethrone humanity from this... And, you know, actually it's not humanity. We need to dethrone men from the top of the pyramid and make everybody equal. Everything, every living thing and a fair few non-living things need to be respected. Rivers need to have rights. Which is starting to happen. We're starting to see different nations in the world give things like rivers the same rights as a human so that then people can sue on behalf of the river for damages and things like that. Yeah, we're certainly making steps in the right direction. Um, That river is still not is, 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 let's say it's, it's in the realm of a legal fiction at the moment. It's not deeply felt, not sufficiently deeply felt, but we will get there, I yeah. think. And the, the, the work that, is, that climate change throws upon everyone alive today is to rebuild our society with that sense of our connectedness. And so from a farming point of view, you know, a farmer needs to consider... You know, the vast array of life that's sitting under the soil that normally, you know, oh, that's dirt. No, that's not dirt. That is a great big living organism in itself. Mm. It's full of fungus and bacteria and goodness knows what. Honestly, 99.9% of it hasn't even been described. We do not know what is there. We barely understand how it works. And yet, you know, what does farming do? The standard farmer these days farms out of a chemical drum pours glyphosate on several times a season which was going to interfere with all of those all of those reactions and produce the desired product but in likely in a highly let's say a questionable form and and it's can you farm and in a way that looks after the birds can you farm in a way that looks after the lizards can you it's like everything needs to be considered in this because everything is a part of our world and um, we've got to change the values from that kind of blind neoliberal everything can be converted to a dollar mentality to one of I measure my success in terms of the the relationships that exist on this piece of land the relationships between everything if we expand that to the to the you know, the older aboriginal view of things it brings in you know, what the old Aboriginal people call the old people, the, the ancestors, those who, and it blends in the, in the deep past into dream, dreaming and creation beings itself, themselves. So you have 
distant ancestors and you can't tell the difference between them and the dreaming. And those people, in inverted commas, are watching over and feeling everything you do. So there's a sense of value, a sense of, you know, I have to do only what those old people would approve of. Now, if you start seeing the world that way, it really changes everything you do. I can come up with three very, very plausible triggers for a, a major dislocation, if not collapse, of Western systems. The first of those would be already we're seeing extreme weather. We're seeing a massive drought in, in New South Wales. It's only going to take a few crop failures in the same you know, temporal period. So over a two-year period, let's imagine the Victorian wheat crop fails and the Western Australian wheat crop gets a disease caused by stress or whatever changes. Let's imagine the, oh, let's imagine the Russian wheat crop suddenly faced with unusually humid temperatures all goes down to a rust. A uh, series of storms ruins the, the corn crop in the US Midwest. All this happens over a two-year period. We have approaching 8 billion people on this planet. We actually sail very close to the wind in terms of um, delivering the calories people need as it is, and we're having to double our food production over the next decade. Uh, under the conditions of depleted soil and unpredictable climate. And we expect it, it, takes, this, it takes one extreme day to destroy a crop across a whole region. And we saw this, I think it was back in was it 2016, 2015, in, in central Victoria, there was one horrendous day. It was only 36 degrees, but howling wind after a very poor winter rainfall period, and the entire wheat crop was fried. One day did that. You just imagine this replicating across different areas. Suddenly there is not enough food. Now, we in Australia, we might be right. We're rich. But millions, possibly billions of people around the world will be starving. What are we going to do about that? Are we going to have any capacity to do anything about that? And if it happens again and again, you know, we might not be so lucky. That may not lead to the collapse of the Australian state, but it will certainly change the world in a very dramatic way. OK, scenario two is uh, one that the Australian military has actually advised our government is a very real scenario, and that is uh, extreme weather events such as a cyclone causing massive flooding in South Asia, Bangladesh particularly, and unleashing anything up to 100 million climate refugees. Now that, for starters, will create massive conflict in India. You don't know where that will end with nuclear-armed Pakistan and India and a fairly volatile, an amazingly successful society on one level, but increasingly volatile. And imagine if even a proportion of those people said, yep, Australia's the place to be. Now, we can't handle a few thousand refugees. How are we going to handle tens of millions of refugees? This will completely change everything. And it's real. I mean, if the Australian military is saying this is real, I'm guessing it's pretty real. In the third scenario, we're already seeing isolated events of this. But with melting of permafrost in Russia and that region, we're seeing ancient diseases appearing. And so, though far, thus far, they've killed a bit of killed reindeer and the odd human. It's entirely possible that one of these won't stop there and will spread very quickly. You know, it's probably the, the least likely of my three scenarios, but it's also got a massive potential for disruption. And I'm sure there's 10 other scenarios out there. These are just the ones that I've been exercising my brain on. And uh, it's not a pretty thought, any of them. And you, and from a deep, deep adaptation point of view, you have to say to yourself, what are the values that you want to hang on to? And so I, for one, think we could do a bit better on refugees. But what am I going to think when 100 million refugees are pouring across through Indonesia and overwhelming the world I know, the country I know?
not with any malign intent. They just want shelter. They just want water. They just want food. And we will not be able to provide it. So where do my cherished liberal values go then? You know, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who don't share those values. There'll be plenty of people who are saying send in the army. There wouldn't be enough bullets in the country. But, you know, that's the scale of the problem. And really, better take it seriously because it's really that massive event in Bangladesh is a matter of when, not if. Mm. With rising sea levels and increased ferocity of storms, it's going to happen. How it unfolds from there depends on a on a hundred different things, but in one scenario, or in every scenario, you can see massive loss of life and massive movement of people. And we know we are a destination of choice. So the process of deep adaptation is actually just to try and foresee all the far-reaching scenarios of climate change and then start thinking now about what we might need to do in 50 years. Or five years. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the practical things, but it's also the cultural and emotional things. Understanding that this would be a very difficult time emotionally. There's going to be terrific mental health hurdles to overcome, to deal with. We need to feed ourselves. We need to take care of what we have left. We need to know what's worth saving and what is not. We need to bequeath to those who come behind something to make life worth living. And um, there's a certain point at which that's probably not possible. And that depends probably, well, it depends. At, right now it depends on politicians, but pretty soon, and perhaps already, it's out of their hands and it moves into non-linear feedback territory and then honestly we don't know we just don't know what the future holds and that should scare the hell out of everybody so a nation like australia before colonization was actually 500 nations all sort of collaboratively working and having relationships between different areas and groups and if the nation as it stands now with one federal government and seven states and territories if that all sort of collapsed would we end up with many, many local regions again, do you think, who are without one big overarching government body? It's hard to, hard to predict such things, but I think that if there is a good future to be built, to be found, a big part of that will lie in a lot more of our governance being locally based. Now that's, I'm not sure whether that means you know, like the equivalent of our local shire councils or even more local than that. The management of resources really needs to be done by the people who depend on them and that has really big problems I mean I've done a lot of work on the Darling River and the issue there is you know if we had local management of water then of course all the water would be taken by the people upstream and to hell with those downstream and that's exactly what's been going on aided and abetted by the government so there has to be an ethic that runs through it which says that we care for everybody up and down that river or any, any river, that the water that flows there has rights of its own and that everybody up and down that river has rights. That the platypus has rights and the, the cod. Yes, platypus, every, everything around that has rights and we must, you know, we might, you know, inverted commas, own this bit of river. We might care for this bit of river that flows past us. But I suppose the point is that the water that flows there is not seen as a productive resource in an industrial sense, which it is. The upper reaches of the Darling River, it's a production factor. We need water, we need labour, we need this, we need that. You know, these are just production factors. We need fertiliser, we need Roundup. All these things go into making money. And we need, I mean, that rejigged society that actually cares about relationships and cares about everything says, well, it's important we grow food and we can grow food and it uses a very small proportion of that water. But to become wealthy off that water, mm. that's a different story. And the, the irony of all this is some really decent people are behind it all. One of the biggest investors in Australian water is American superannuation funds. So it's nice Democrat voting teachers with paying their superannuation each month and they say, well, where's a good investment? Oh, low sovereign risk in Australia, let's buy water. And they're buying a commodity. They're not understanding that by turning it into a commodity, you are annulling all other relationships. Mm. And they are beyond count. Even on a 
you know, species bases, it's beyond count, but take it down to individuals, indi- you know, it's just unbelievable what we destroy by saying, yeah, that's for growing cotton. So if your magic wand is waved and you were the Prime Minister of Australia right now, what would you do? Goodness, I would try to position this country as a leader in renewable energy, a leader in dealing with climate change. We could have done this at any time in the last 15 years and the stupidity of politics got in the way of that. People just playing for votes and dog whistling to various bigoted portions of the population. But I think we, we really need to... If, if I was Prime Minister and I really did have that magic wand, I think I would want to put in place laws against ecocide. I want redress. I want to know that the people who destroy the environment can be and will be held to account. And there's a global movement pushing for that. But, of course, you know, not too many politicians are going to be in a hurry to create the laws that will indict them in the future for backing neoliberal models over you know, this strange idea that humans aren't the be-all and end-all. We aren't you know, the pinnacle product of the universe, of life on Earth as humanity. I don't think so. I think it's very challenging, especially there are certain mindsets where they, they will just never believe that they are not, you know, put on earth to rule. Sure, it's, it's hard to see some people changing, but this is, not a, this is not something that's going to happen overnight. I don't expect it to. It's something that's been building actually since the late 1800s. This awareness, people are getting there. And is it growing or is it not? We might be in a period of retreat right now. I think that the sudden realisation that climate change is real and present danger will possibly cause another tipping point uh, at which humanity will say we have got to live a different way, we've got to be a different way. I feel like we are seeing that, and especially in our region, I don't know what's happening beyond our region necessarily, but there are a lot of people focusing on buying local food, supporting local farmers, producing your own things, recycling, not not buying new if you can buy secondhand, you know, supporting all these different alternatives to the buy it and throw it away if it breaks kind of um, mentality, which has been with us probably since the 50s at the very least. Yeah, look, I mean, all those things you talk about, recycling and just using less and all that, these are all great things and we need it. But to my mind, these are still tinkering around the edges. We need to do these things, but we need to do more. And that more is to look inside ourselves and really place ourselves in a really committed way as a subservient part of a whole instead of a dominant part. And if everybody can do that, and I'm saying some portions of society may never get there, but if enough of us do, then we can at least create the laws that will hold the others in check. That was Peter Yates and I talking from his home just outside of Malden several months ago, before the coronavirus had grabbed the world's attention and made the topic of deep adaptation so very pertinent. I'd like to make the point, before we wrap up, that just because the coronavirus is slowing our headlong sprint over the cliff of climate change, it hasn't resolved it. The virus is a short-term problem in the scale of things compared to the larger and much more devastating effects of climate change. It is hard to make the kind of drastic changes to our society, our rules, our lives, as has happened with the coronavirus, unless the threat is imminent. But the threat of the coronavirus is only to humanity, and only to a portion of humanity. We can still farm and produce food. We can still live in our homes and have electricity and running water. So let's not forget that as dire as this situation is right now, it has nothing on the threat of climate change. Ecosystems collapsing and unstable weather will mean that farming may not be possible and our homes and easy access to water may not be able to be taken for granted. Carbon emissions are slowing down right now as the world locks down and tries to manage this disease. But once we have a vaccine and people are able to go about their lives again, they will probably go back to what they were 
or potentially even greater as people try to catch up with time lost. Carbon stays in our atmosphere for decades, so make no mistake, climate change will still be there as a problem on the other side of coronavirus. I have linked to some more articles about the relationship between coronavirus and the climate emergency in the episode description on saltgrass.podbean.com. If you want to hear more from Peter, listen to episode 7 of this series at saltgrass.podbean.com where we discuss the documentary film he made with his son, Rory McLeod. Thanks for listening, and if you're enjoying this series, please share it and tell your friends. A lot of people have a lot more time on their hands right now, so it's the perfect time to be sharing good podcasts. Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. My name is Alison Hanley and I have been your host today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our emailing list to get reminders and updates about the show. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have ideas for topics, know someone amazing we should talk to, have a recycling tip, a green product review, or have a song recommendation. Again, email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or MASG. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>